did it on the first class, so I got it out of the way. Yeah, and I, I heard something, I was reading something recently that, that struck me, and, it, and this is why I want to, I want to ask the hard questions that are open-ended, is that this guy was saying, he said, it is, it, it is impossible to respect the Bible too highly, but it is possible to respect it wrongly. And he said, I've noticed something, he said, that sometimes the Bible defenders are the worst because as soon as they come to a difficult passage, they quickly find an answer and they just kind of smooth over it. And the problem is, is some of those passages, if you actually work through them, you realize there's an answer, but maybe it's a different answer than the, the easy, smooth answer. It's more complicated than that. So it doesn't mean it's an actual contradiction. Like you said, you can't respect it too highly, but you can respect it wrongly. So you gotta dig into it. And a lot of times, I have found that the passages that I really had to work through turned out to be some of my favorites. There was something that was very, very deep there that it was easy just to kind of smooth over. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to mention. Oh, uh, the beginning of the book does have a link, and I'll send it out in the email that I sent out tonight. To if you want to get to the slides, there all the slides are posted on a Google Drive, so you can get those at any point. They're actually all all of them for all of the classes are already up, but. I'm sure they'll probably change over time. There's also a PDF version of the book, so if you want a PDF version, electronic version, you can get that. Also, if somebody is a visitor and they want a book, I think we're going to have plenty. I've consistently under-purchased books, so this time I overdid it the other direction. Hopefully, maybe. But if they want a book, they can have a book. The, I would say even ask them. You can tell them to talk to me if they want some more content, because I can give them some other things that maybe they, if you know, they want to have the teacher's guide or anything like that, I can talk to them about that. All right, questions or comments about any of that? All right, then we're gonna get kicked off with a prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing of your holy church. And we thank you for our savior and each other. We're so thankful that we can gather to study your word freely and to strive to know your ways and live lives that please you. We pray you'll be with Luke. You'll grant him insight today into this book, and he can help us, and we can help him. We pray you'll be with our number who are sick, and ask that you bless and heal them. We thank you for all things. And through your holy Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, there was a, an administrator at this Bible college. And so he goes to the president of the Bible college, and he says, you need to know we have a problem. We might have a problem. He said some of the students were upset over something that one of the professors said. And they're raising a complaint. And what made it worse was that this professor had said this in chapel, of all places. So the president goes to this guy. And he knows that he basically reads from a script, preaches from a script. So he says, can you give me your script? And so he looks at it to try to figure out what they were so offended about. The, so he tried to find the words that this student said should have had a trigger warning. And the words were this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. He looks at this and he said, there's no sarcasm anywhere in this sermon. There was nothing that could possibly be offensive. And so he got the students' complaint and they said, well, that passage, the, what he said, it made me feel guilty because it made me feel like I was not loving. And it made my peers feel like they were not loving. And so he wrote them back. He did a, a speech and he said this. He said, that feeling of discomfort you have after listening to a sermon is called a conscience. 
The goal of many a good sermon is to get you to confess your sins, not coddle you in your selfishness. The primary objective of the church and the Christian faith is your confession, not your self-actualization. We teach you to be selfless rather than self-centered. We are more interested in you practicing personal forgiveness than political revenge. We want you to model interpersonal reconciliation rather than foment personal conflict. We believe the content of your character is more important than the color of your skin. This is not a safe safe place, but rather a place to learn, to learn that life isn't about you, but about others. He said, then he ends, he said, this is a place where you will quickly learn that you need to grow up. This is not a daycare, this is a university. Now I was thinking about this, and the passage that they reacted to was 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, we call it the quintessential love passage. You, you, you read this, it's like, how could anybody possibly be offended by this? And then, as I studied 1 Corinthians, I realized something. That I think if I was in the Corinthian church, if you got to that chapter, I think I would have actually been a bit shamed by it. And I say that because I think when we read 1 Corinthians 13, you know, this is the passage that it's read at weddings. People put it on coffee cups. Women wear it on their shirts. And I'm not being sexist. I'm just saying, if my wife had it on her shirt, you wouldn't think it's too weird. But if I did, it would seem weirder. And we're supposed to look at that passage, we think, and just go, oh, and it's supposed to, it sounded nice and things like that. But I think when the Corinthians heard it, it kind of landed where they felt like these students felt. And as I studied this book again, and it's funny, I always feel like the first time I really get ready for a class, it's like the first time I've actually studied the book. I realize that 1 Corinthians 13 is the climax of the book. All of the issues that are in the first 12 chapters, they lead up to chapter 13. And if you see chapter 13 and you know the content before, you can see how it ties back. I was talking to Russ, and and Russ was saying how he'd come to the same conclusion I did, independently of me. And he said, yeah, that's true, because he said when he lists the things, he says love is, and then he says love is not. The love is not parts are all pointers back to all the issues they had before. Right, so it all feeds up to that chapter. And if you think about all the issues they had, you realize that pride and selfishness touches almost every single one of those. And so it makes sense, it fits. And that's why in the book, that's why I I titled it Love is the Real Miracle, because he's going to tell them, he's going to say, prophecy, earlier in the book he says, of the spiritual gifts, prophecy is the best. He actually sorts them, Paul does. But he says love is better than prophecy. The Corinthians had thought that spiritual gifts were really important, but they had the list backwards because they had tongues, which Paul puts right at the end. They had it as the top. He says it's better than tongues. So in a certain sense, what Paul's saying is that love is more miraculous than even miracles are in a certain sense. And so as I saw that, it just it kind of all fits together when you think of it like that. So questions or comments on that? So you had to wait at least seven seconds to really go from listening mode to speaking mode. Or maybe longer, I don't know. It's somebody saying. All right. So let's talk about, I'm going to talk about the situation. Uh, let me, you know, I can come here. That's super weird. Okay, well, hopefully I'll find it before the class starts. <laughs> Outline. Okay, so he starts off. 
First Corinthians is structured by a series of issues. So the first one is divisions. Then he's going to talk about sex and lawsuits. He talks about sex, he talks about, and then he goes to lawsuits, and then he goes back to talking about sex. So I just, I just grouped them. Then he talks about issues with food. And then he's going to talk about issues in the assembly. And then he's going to talk about the resurrection, because some have denied the resurrection. And then finally, he has some closing thoughts. So in the first section, he's going to do an introduction. He's going to talk about, right off the bat, he's going to talk about divisions. And he's going to talk about how Chloe was the one who warned him that something was going on. And when he gets to sex and lawsuits, he'll talk about how there's something going on in this congregation that even the Gentiles don't do. And then he's going to talk about lawsuits, and then he'll come back to talking about, talking about how sex and gender work. And food, he's going to talk about how we all have knowledge. That's the claim. That seems like one of the things that the Corinthians are saying here. But he's specifically talking about idols and how, how does this work when it talks about meat sacrificed to idols, which is a problem in their culture. And, and he's going to eventually talk about the Jews. Then he's going to smoothly kind of go into the assembly. I say smoothly because there's actually still connections, even though there's chapter markers. They're, they're a bit fuzzy, if you will. And he's talk about things in the assembly, coverings. What do we do with this whole thing of head coverings, both for men and women? And some of the other issues they're having there. And he's going to talk about the resurrection. It winds up being kind of an apologetic argument. And then he's going to close. The, another way to look at this is that there are several things the Corinthians have asked about. Now, Chloe has opened the letter and said there's issues. And she's alerted him that there's problems. But it also appears that they've asked questions. And if you, you'll see this phrase, now about, or something to that effect. And the Greek is pretty much the same each time. And so they ask about abstaining from sex. They ask about, well, should we be avoiding marriage? Eating food, how do we handle this thing of eating food sacrificed to idols? Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts actually are a big part throughout this book. The collection for the saints, and then they ask about a visit from Apollos. Another thing that's kind of interesting about this is there's actually a chiastic structure in the entire book. So it starts off, talks about the cross. It talks a lot about the cross in the early chapters. He talks about unity and how the cross should be causing unity. Then he's going to talk about men and women in the human family. This is where he talks a lot about sex and gender and how does this whole thing work. Then he's going to talk about food offered to gods or God. Now, I say it like that because he's going to talk about three different categories. He's going to talk about pagan gods, he's going to talk about the Jews, and he's going to talk about the assembly. So he's going to talk about spiritual food and spiritual drink and, then, and temples. So maybe pagans. Food sacrificed to idols, there's the food element, where? In their temples. That's the same thing when you go to the Jews, right? Spiritual food, spiritual drink, in a certain sense, and they have a temple. And it's also true of the church. There's a spiritual food and a spiritual drink here too, Lord's Supper, and we are the temple. So there's this nice connection between all three of these. Then he's going to go back up and talk about men and women in worship. Well, that's pretty similar to the earlier section. And then he's going to come back to the resurrection. So the cross actually matches the resurrection in the end and brings it all back together. I thought it was pretty cool. I, didn't, I hadn't picked up on that, but it makes a lot of sense. Another thing you should know is that there are possible, there are things that I'll put as possible slogans. So if you see something, it's like it's kind of, it strikes you as surprising that Paul would say, note that it could be that that's not something Paul's saying he's responding to. Remember, the Corinthians have brought things up. They've asked him questions about this. Now, I say possible slogans. Here's the thing. Not all interpreters, not all Bible scholars agree on which ones are slogans or not. And, I mean, which is probably not a surprise. They never seem to totally agree. 
there's this paper, and I've actually simplified this because there's a bunch that aren't represented in translations. What this is is a list of translations and whether the translations list these things that are possible slogans as slogans. And so they'll represent them a lot of times by putting them in quote marks. Greek does not have quote marks, right? So anytime you see those, somebody's had to add them. And sometimes they'll have a footnote saying, this is a possible slogan or is highly likely to be a slogan. And so you see here, they don't totally agree. So it's one of the things is just to keep that in mind, that if you see something and it says something like, here's one I think is highly likely to be a slogan. He says, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. He's not talking about food, stomach sex. Well, this sounds like a justification. Well, God made me so that I could have sex, so I'm having sex. That's what I do. Well, of course, there's a certain truth to that, and then there's ways that that could be taken too far. And so if you see things, especially with some of the slogans where he says the slogan, I, you know, I have freedom to do this sort of thing, and then he keeps picking it apart. Well, that's probably because he's picking it apart. It's a slogan. He's not actually saying that he's picking it apart because that's what they're saying. That's how people are justifying things. So just keep... Keep that in the back of your head, and as you read this, if you see quote marks in your Bible, you, you could accept that as being you know, a possible slogan, but try to evaluate it and see how that fits in, and see if that changes your understanding of it. Hello? Yes? And that is based on the idea that, if I'm not mistaken, correct, that, that Chloe presented specific things that maybe, that Chloe presented specific things that maybe the Corinthians were saying, and Paul is addressing those without us knowing exactly what Chloe had written Paul. Right. It's that one thing where it says now about, and he specifically in a couple of cases say you mentioned this, so it's clear that some of them, when it says in the Greek peri-day, now about, the assumption is that those are things they asked about. The quotes, there's really a couple things. There's scholars have questioned how to figure out which ones are quotes, and there's a few things they use. Because it's not, like I said, it's not perfect. Yeah, well, that's one of the things is that maybe Chloe mentioned it. Also, Paul had been with them for well over a year. So he may have heard some of those things said, and so he's kind of readdressing them. The other thing is that it's also likely that some of these things were being said in the culture. So he would have recognized. If you think about it, that's true today. Think about the bumper stickers you see. People just say stuff, yeah, they're the worst, too. I mean, it's, I mean for all sorts of reasons, because I just hate the looks of bumper stickers, too. But... There's certain things that people say, so he may have even recognized them in the culture. Yeah, so that, and that's the things that they mentioned. So maybe she didn't even say that they were saying it specifically, but I think that's probably likely that she did actually mention them. Yeah, it's a good question. Anything else on that? Questions or comments? I'm going to skip this time. I'm going to go to the next one. Actually, let's, before we do that, okay, it does. I wanted to hear from y'all, from, as I know many of you have studied this book before. In the past, when you have studied 1 Corinthians, what stood out to you? Or what do you think, thought was significant? Yeah, Daniel. And why did it stand out to you? I just remember that being just a theme that was talking about. Okay, yeah, and that's a good point too, because it's it's kind of shocking. It's not only they have divisions, 
but they have divisions over people who are trying to do good work. It's like, you divide all things, you're going to divide this over preachers? I mean, that seems, so it just makes it a little bit worse. In fact, at the end, he, they ask about Paulus coming, and he says, well, Paulus is basically not ready to come. And it, you almost wonder, was he worried about the fact that, like, if I come, is this just going to make this situation worse because they're dividing over people like me? But, but we don't have that sort of problem in the churches today, so that's a good news. <laughs> yes, Mitch. One you've kind of already touched on, First um, Corinthians 13, in the context, seems to be referring back to chapter 12 especially, um, and that, that is referring to the body and how we interact with each other. Um, and so when you read First Corinthians 13 in that mindset, looking back at chapter 12, it takes on a whole new um, picture. Um, and then the other thing is uh, in your handout that you sent out, our question via email was, what is something that you maybe have questions on or don't quite understand you want to cover? Um, so chapter 7 is one of those for me. Um, just how there is really two things. One is how <clears throat> Paul mentions... Uh, there are some things that he got directly from God, and then there are other things that is his opinion. Um, so just want to touch on, are there other times where he writes his opinion that he hasn't hmm. said this is my opinion? Should How should we take his opinion? Um, and then also it seems like at, in one of the sections in chapter 7, when it's talked, it, um, it seems like there are married couples who were not Christians before they were married. One of them becomes a Christian, and then it seems like you need to have a discussion with your mate on, look, I'm a different person now, different than who you married. If you're okay with that, great. If not, we're okay to get divorced. So... Yeah, we will talk about it. Especially, that was one of the things that did strike me, that the first part you had, where Paul distinguishes very clearly between these different ways of understanding how he came to these things. And Jesse and I had a, a discussion about this, because, yeah, we'll, we'll have more. We actually have a, a, a question in to talk about that. I think that was significant, something worth talking about. Yes, Ryan. I think it's Yeah, I, I was talking to Lisa Fisher, and she said, okay, yeah, there's, do we have only one Lisa? See, I always put last names, because half the congregation seems to have the name Brad or Ryan, and I can never remember which ones are like the same name, but yeah, so Lisa was saying how, and this totally matches what I have thought about. She said, it used to be that First Corinthians was not one of my favorite books, because it has all these church problems, so it just sounds dark. She said, but I've changed on that, because I was, I can't remember exactly how she put it, it's interesting how soft Paul is to the Corinthians. 
And I was like, oh, I 100% agree. I'm like, I am surprised. He's like, what in the world? You'd think he would be so much harsher to them. But it's like he said, he calls them saints. <laughs> it seems really generous. I mean, you imagine people going in there. It's like, hey, Paul, see, we've got a guy who's drunk over there. This guy over here, he's got his uh, father's wife. Uh, that's how we do church, right? And Paul's like, no, no, that's not, that's not how we do this. Right? There's a lot of problems. He actually gives thanks for them, right? Exactly. He's really kind to them. And it, oh, I remember there's something else she said. She said, you know, if that was a church today, we wouldn't go there. Paul didn't give up on them. I think that's pretty significant. All right, right. Just kind of go along with what he said. It's just amazing what he said at first about you don't have any gift, you have very kind of knowledge, and if you were just stuck there, you didn't think this church has arrived. But then the hammer comes down. So there's great comfort in that to me that you don't have to be perfect to be blessed by God. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's true, because if you see the spiritual gifts in there, you, you can't, it's, it'd be easy for us if we saw a church nearby to just discard them. But if you saw there were actual legit spiritual gifts, you'd have to stop and think, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe God makes up some perfect people and these are people just working through things. Yes? This is sort of going off what Mitch had said. Uh, always been curious about the application of the book. I think there are certain things that are, like the, the, the context of what he's dealing with in that church, like he, he mentioned there in chapters, like if you're single, you should get married because of the present distress. So like what's the present distress? What does that have to do with us? What's going on there? Obviously, I have issue that's like the context of the here. Obviously, when you know there's a time in the Bible, like the rich young ruler, where we understand he isn't Jesus isn't directly telling all of us to go and sell all of our possessions. He's dealing with that particular issue there, and there are things that we can gain, underlying morality that we can gain from that. So, you know, how much of that is what Paul's doing, what sort of underlying morality, are they here to apply to ourselves versus how much of this is like directly applicable to like a rule, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because like I think what you just said fits very nicely with Mitch's question about how Paul distinguishes between the things where there's just a clear command. There's things where, all the way down to his opinion, saying the current state, and I think we should distinguish those. Not because if he says it's an opinion, we just say, oh, okay, no, we just ignore the whole thing. And you use the word principle. There's a principle still under there. We should dig that out and figure out how to apply that. Right? And you mentioned the, well, I was going to say famines. I think there's good reason to think that that's the present distress. We'll get into this maybe a little bit, well, depending on which time we have. But there's good reason to think that there were famines happening around them. So there's, that might be the situation, but like I said, there's still a principle under there. And the other thing would be the head covering. The thing is about the head covering is that there's two things, and both of these are intention. On one hand, there, I think, my opinion, I think there's good reason to think that he is talking about something in their culture, but here's the other side of it. But when he talks about it, he then talks about these unchanging things under there. So this, this is where I think people differ on it, because it's like, well, look, even if there is something that may be in our culture. There's other things what he talks about that are completely unchanging. So there's intention. How do we resolve that? Yes. Kind of goes along with this uh, thought process anyway. But um, I think that in the past, when I studied First Corinthians, it seems like we have used it to proof text a lot of things that we either want to do or say we can't do. And I think when you look at the context and realize that you know what he said in this chapter. 
four chapters before he actually addressed so what you're trying to prove in 14 or 12 or, or 15 doesn't match with what he said in 5, 6, or 7. And so um, I think that, you know, the, the more that I study this and the more that I look into it, um, context is, is uber important in, in Corinthians, both first and second Corinthians, to truly understand what he's really saying. Yeah, and to your point, I think there's a, I was just telling somebody, I was telling Russ, I had read this thing about how, on speed reading, and one of them is that you try to read a book where you've already read it, and you read about one page about every five, sec- five seconds. Now you just scan it, and it's weird because you're surprised how much, if you've read it a lot, how much you can pick up, but you can get through the entire book really, really fast. And to, to your point, when you do this quickly, you're like, whoa, chapter whatever says something about it, and he, he mentioned the same thing six chapters before. When you go real fast, you see those connections. And, and that's, that kind of proof texting is precisely what I mean by what I mentioned by that quote, where people get so quick to defend something. And what's funny about that is a lot of times I find I actually agree with their conclusion, they're using the wrong passage, which puts them in a weak spot. Because what happens is, is they, they land on this passage, they say, this passage is this, and people poke at it, and they prove, show that's not what it means. And then people, the other side feels justified in their conclusion, even though if you just picked a different passage, you would have actually gotten it right. Just pick the right passage. Yes. Um, we were studying uh, last year quite a bit uh, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And I kind of, I read this with that lens. This is like one of those letters, but longer, more exotic. Um, for most of those churches, Jesus commends them for the things that they're doing. But for most of them, he has some criticism, some, some extensive criticism. Um, and there's an urgency about those messages of here are the things that you need to recognize about yourself, the good things that you need to keep doing more of, and then the things that are, are offensive to me, Jesus says, that you need to correct quickly. There's an urgency. Um, and I hear that in, in Paul, especially in, in Second Corinthians, kind of cheating and sticking ahead, that how much he, he feels for them and loves them. He, he hated to them. He says, you know, I didn't mean to cause you grief. I didn't want this to hurt you. But I did because I wanted it to spur you to repentance. Uh, so you hear in, in Paul this conflict of uh, there's an urgency. You've got things among you that are, are destroying you, hurting you. you. You need to address those. But you also hear his softness, his parental concern, um, his love for these people that yeah, it's a good point. And I like how you bring up Revelation 2 because one of the review questions is, what do we think about this? What did Paul think about the state of the Corinthian salvation? And, and I, I don't think it's one, again, I, I don't ask these simple questions like, where you have just, oh, they're all saved or they're not. I, I think we need to distinguish. And I mention that because you look at the, the letters, the seven letters, and a lot of those you're like, wow, you know, we really got to be careful, which is correct. And so how do we distinguish this out? Is there something different about the situation, or is there a line that gets crossed, and let's, let's kind of work that out? Because uh, there's both sides. People want to make, I remember you preached a sermon on the Jesus in Revelation, because there's people who want to have the hugs and muffins Jesus. And you know what? There's also the Revelations Jesus who's going to clean house. We need both, because they're both in the same Bible in a certain sense. All right, other... Other items that people start to see hands, or did I miss somebody? 
All right, let's talk about what kind of questions did you have that you want, or ideas in the book that you'd like to work out. So Mitchell, you mentioned some. I think some of y'all mentioned them too. No, that's fine. I almost did them as one question, and then you, you did it anyway. So is there anything else that you would think, like if me as a teacher, that I should focus on, on a part of the book, or you just had a question about it? Wow, this is totally different than the Galatians class. Because that was easier because we just read through the whole text through pretty fast. But I would say, do keep that in mind if you see something. Say something to me, especially because I... In, you ever have your conversation, you realize if you try to trace the conversation, it goes all these winding paths. And I actually think that's a good thing because it tends to follow things that people are interested in. Like they've got an open question about. So as the class goes, make sure to bring those up. You can either do it in class or you can email me. You know, just email me or text me about, and because I'd love to dig into that stuff. Yes? Roles of men and women in conduct in the church. Roles of men and women in conduct. Okay, yes, we will talk about that. Yeah, the whole thing of roles is actually something I do want to dig into. And because there's the, the item about the roles in the church, but he really talks a lot in more general terms, and there's other little pointers where he sees something in there that I think is worth talking about. And actually, let's, I'm going to bring up the schedule. Might be we come back to this? We'll see. Okay. One of the things that we have in the class scheduled for is to also have some topical breakouts where we cover a topic that's in First Corinthians and dig, dig into it deeper. And so I'm going to go through some of these. The schedule might change, especially near the end. But we'll see how this goes. The first I want to talk about is a topical lesson about how, about the cross. The cross is central to the gospel. And I've really changed my understanding. And I changed, I've deepened my understanding of the cross. And it features very deeply in First Corinthians, like the entire letter. Because it's pretty much central to everything in the New Testament. So I wanted to talk about this. But what about it that makes it so offensive to the world... That same offense is precisely what we love about it. And talk about how you have changed over time in your understanding about the cross. So we've got a lesson on that planned for January 18th. Another one is avoiding divisions. Now, I am going to define for this, and it says this in the book, divisions in a very tight way, which is going to be divisions that are not actually about a real issue. Like if, so, if you have, you're in a church and one side of the church says that I don't think Jesus is God. Okay, if you divide over that, that seems like a pretty clear line, okay? But then there's these other ones where churches divide, and I don't, I don't think the issue that they say is the issue is really the issue. And I remember that because I was part of a church that was dividing, and I remember somebody asked the person who was in the process of dividing it, he said, would you be willing to overlook that issue? And he said, not anymore. And that struck me. What do you mean, not anymore? He's saying he wasn't willing to split the church, but he was willing to split the church. Now, what's going on there? So I want to talk a bit about that. Divisions features a large part, and this is what Daniel brought up in First Corinthians. So we talk about that and see if we can come up with some concepts that could, in theory, head off churches from going into that state. Another one, this is a little bit different, although it might be related, is avoiding cliques. Now, I'm, again, I'm going to define cliques a little bit specifically, which is that clique would be where you have these close associations in churches that's not necessarily sin. I'm not going to say it's sinful, right? The divisions one, I'm going to say, is sinful. This one's not. But I also don't want to say that you have to have the same relationship with every person in the church, because that would be weird. 
Because some of you are married, and you know you should not have the same relationship with other people's wives as you do with your own wife, because that's obviously incorrect. So you can't smoothen it out to say everybody has to have the exact same relationship. But I think there's also some flexibility where we could work to try to talk to more of our brethren than we could. So let's, let's just talk about how do we do that. Another one is making sense out of sex and gender. I think, I have noticed, and this isn't just talking about Avon, I'm just saying in general, that usually when the church talks about sex, it's negative. If you say the church talks about sex, it's going to be about lust, adultery, fornication. Well, here's the thing about it. I don't think that is, I think we could do better than that. So could we put together an argument about how sex and gender fits in the gospel in a way that it shows that it's also beautiful? And this is something that the Bible does, or this is something I think it's underlying, and Paul talks about it in, in several places where he alludes to this, the gender roles as being showing something beautiful about the gospel. But he also talks about singleness. So these are intention. He talks about how marriage is a beautiful thing, but also singleness is a beautiful thing. So again, these are kind of intentions. So I want to talk about that because I would say growing up, I just assumed I was going to get married. And I never really considered a life of singleness as being something that you can choose to do. And that kind of struck me as odd. Why don't we consider that as an option? I mean, it sounds really awkward. I'm already married. I, I would do it all over the same way. But why is it that we tend to assume everybody should get married? I think there's kind of an underlying assumption of that. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, neither cause nor take offense. So that, the idea of the conscience fat features in First Corinthians. And the more you think about it, this strikes me as a bit odd in hindsight. If I think that in Indiana I cannot change lanes in an intersection, but I do anyways, a cop will not pull me over. Because it turns out there's no law against this. I, I looked this up. Okay? But a cop will not pull me over. He says, yes, there is no law for it. But you thought there was a law, so you broke it, so you've got a problem. That's not what happens. That's not how laws work. But actually, we do have to obey our consciousness. So let's kind of work through that. How do we work that out? Because this has some practical implications about how we affect other people and how we talk to other people. The city of God within the city of man. Here's something that's odd. Paul targeted cities. Why did Paul target these metropolitan areas? If I were to say that, give me a list of the areas where you think Christianity is thriving, you're not going to say downtown New York City. You're not going to say downtown LA. You're not going to say downtown San Francisco. But Paul targeted those places, which is kind of odd. Like, why did he do that? And so let's kind of think through that about why might that be the case? Why might it be that they, the church seems to grow slower in the city? What kind of challenges does it have? Because we may be able to take some of those ideas and apply it here, even if you're not in the city. And I, I haven't done this yet, but I was thinking about reaching out to some Church of Christ preachers who preach right in the middle of the city, but have also lived in rural areas, just to get their feedback, too, about how, what is different about that, because I think there are some differences. I've actually heard some things where they've said yeah, there are some differences that you need to be aware of. Not that the message is different, but the way you talk about it and the way you, you work through it is different. And then this one might get dropped or it might get changed because there's with another one, but one of the things I like about Paul is that Paul treats the Corinthians like adults, which is actually kind of funny because he says, I have to treat you like infants. What I mean by that is he doesn't want to do an outright ban and just say, look, Meat sacrificed to idols, don't. How many sentences, how many words is that? Six words? He spends several chapters talking about this. They say, well, it depends on the situation. And he gives them the underlying principles. He, he treats them like adults. And, and so he doesn't just go to an outright ban. He says, let me explain, though. And that's what I mean by treats like adults. 
So this one was, let's think through some of the issues that churches tend to have. And I don't just mean, I'm just in, in general. Think about what kind of issues do churches in rural areas have versus those in city areas. Let's list them out and let's see if we could craft an argument of how would Paul address that? Because he wouldn't just say, don't do it. He would say, don't do it and let me explain why. Or sometimes let's draw distinctions between these things. So we, we'll, that one's maybe likely to get dropped, especially if we have a snow day or something like that. So that's the plan. So we'll have breakouts. This is the tentative schedule. Uh, any questions or comments about any of that? All right, I am going to go back. So one of the questions that people, some scholars have had is why did the church in Corinth have these problems? So Paul was there for over a year, 18 months, or potentially even a little bit longer than that. And you would think that if Paul had been with them so long, they wouldn't think it was okay that a man had his father's wife, for example. I mean, you think that that's kind of a, you know, church 101 kind of thing. And what, studying the history of this, there's a, a book that was particularly influential I read years ago called After Paul Left Corinth. So that's the question he's like, what, why did these issues happen after Paul left Corinth? What he says is that, the scholar was in his 80s, he said that scholarship has made all these advances where we understand more about the culture at the time, the Greco-Roman culture, Roman culture. Really. And when you understand that, you'll understand that things were changing pretty quickly for life back then. And so what he thinks is a lot of these were fairly new questions that were coming up. And so the Corinthians were dealing with these things changing in their society and answering a lot of these things wrongly. So for, if you look at a timeline, Paul comes to Corinth, about 49, maybe 50 AD, probably plants the church early when he goes there. There's a little bit of ambiguity there. And sometime, not too long after that, there's this guy named Dinipus. And Dinipus wound up being elected as something called the grain curator. The grain curator was an office that only existed during a famine. And what they did is that if you had a famine, you'd have the, a run on the grain. And so what happened is the rich people, they see everybody running on the grain. They're worried that maybe we're not going to have enough, so they hold back. The price of grain shoots up. Well, then the, the poor people can't get grain. And so they wind up mobbing to go just steal it. And so what, the way they smoothed this over is they would say, we're going to elect this guy called the grain curator. He's going to manage it, and he's going to force the rich to sell it at a certain rate to make sure that we don't have a mob for him. Dinipus winds up being elected a grain curator here for the first time, and he gets elected three more times in relatively short succession. So what it tells us is that there was a series of famines. Not only that, but Corinth had two ports, which is one of the reasons it was, it was actually a pretty wealthy city. One of them would go to Egypt, and Egypt was also a source of grain. Well, if you go look at Egypt, Egypt winds up, we know from their tax records, that they wind up having a bunch of defaults. So why were they having defaults? Well, because they were having a famine as well. So basically, Corinth has a problem. It can't grow the grain. And its secondary source, Egypt, is apparently defaulting. It can't grow the grain. So you can see how this would be an issue. And famines get really bad when you have several in a row, because that's when you start running out of the supplies. And so that might explain the thing that you mentioned, John, about how when he says the present distress, I think there's good reason to think that that is actually a reference to famine. In fact, in fact the word there for present distress is anonki in Greek. And in a, like a first year Greek grammar, it'll say the word means necessity, which is it's also used for famine. It make, makes a lot of sense, necessity. Famine would be like a necessity, a particular harsh form of it. So that might bring up that question. There's Gal this guy named Gal uh, Galio. He, we can 
figure out when he was in this role pretty tightly based on archaeology, it's called the Delphi inscription. And Paul winds up being in front of him in Acts 18. That winds up also being why 1 Corinthians is dated when it is dated. It's a little complicated about how they date that, but they, they usually put a pretty fine date on it. So after this, Paul leaves there, and then he goes to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, we see Dinopis is the president of something called the, the Isthmus Games. And so this, this is something else that happened in our culture, is that things were changing religiously in our culture. There's this Isthmus Games that came in, and these Isthmus Games were noted for having these, these meals... And it was also noted that these meals would tend to be associated with prostitutes bring, being brought in. So you have a couple issues here. You have sex and you have food being brought in. Uh, pagan food, food sacrificed to idols. And all, other things in culture would explain things in Corinthians like the government ran the meat market. And the, they ran the meat market, but they would also make exceptions for Jews. But they would pull back those exceptions, like having kosher meat, if there were issues with the Jews. So we know that they operated the meat market. If you're a Christian back then, and you become a Christian, and you're like, I don't know, should I eat meat sacrificed to idols? If there's meat that's not sacrificed to idols in the meat market, you probably just buy that. It's easy. You don't even question it. But what happens if they pull that kosher meat because they, they wind up having issues with the Jews? Well, we know they were, there were issues that were creeping up at that time. And so what one of the theories is, is that the Roman government removed the kosher meat, which caused the, these Christians to say, oh, well, what do we do now? Can I just not eat meat? Or can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? And so that may be a question that came up. It didn't come up when Paul was there. It came up later. And that's why people are trying to adjudicate it. First Corinthians would be written mid to, yeah, mostly early to mid-50s. He wrote it from Ephesus. A fifth Jerusalem visit is the fifth time that Paul probably... There's some question about how many times he went to Jerusalem. This would probably be his fifth visit. Remember he talks about collecting money for them? That would probably be it. He delivered it. All right. So uh, we're, we're going to talk about some of the cultural items, the history there, that might explain some of the things. Just know that ancient scholars bring that up. It's a theory. Some of the things can be shown are with stronger evidence than others. All right. Questions or comments about that? Any of that stuff? Or anything for that matter? So in the Romans class, we talked about Jews versus Gentiles. The question has come up, too, in the past about how, what was the church composed of? Gentiles, what took out to be Gentiles and Jews? You can make a much stronger argument for Gentiles, but there's actually some good reason to think that Jews were probably there too. Uh, let me get to... There's actually some archaeology. They actually found evidence of a synagogue in Corinth. And so you, you can actually see, you can see the menorah at the bottom. It, there's... So that we know that there was a synagogue in Corinth. Acts 18 knows that, notices or gives us a proof that there was a synagogue in Corinth. The... Other thing was that we know that Jewish presence in cities of the Greek East was as high as 10%. It's kind of surprising that they, even out in the Greek East, there'd be that many Jews. And I'm saying all this to say there's a decent chance that there was actually some Jews in the church. Which, so think about that as we work this through. To what degree might that explain some of the issues? Because I think that it could explain some of the things. Which also would be pretty funny because you're going to have people who 
who did not have anything to do with Judaism. You know, they grew up in paganism, they ate all sorts of things that Jews would consider nasty. And then you've got these really religious Jews, people who grew up in a religious household, the kind of people who, you know, read the entire Left Behind series. And now they're in the, they're in the same church, right? That was a joke about the Left Behind series. I would not suggest reading it, but anyways. Uh, but there's two very different backgrounds, right? And they're now mixed in the same church. And you can imagine how much of a shock that might be for a Jew when some of the things are happening. There's uh, one thing I was reading from scholars, and they were talking about how there was a synagogue, and the synagogue listed a bunch of people who had participated in this soup kitchen. And so it listed their names. Well, the names, you can figure out which ones are Jews and which ones are not Jews. And it was 45% of the people in the synagogue were Gentiles. They actually had Gentile names, which is shockingly high. So not only were there, would there, could there be Jews in the church, we know that there was a significant number of Gentiles who participated actually in synagogues. Now, they may not have been full Jews in the sense they took on circumcision. Acts talks about these things called God-fears, or people who fear God, but they stop at the point of circumcision. So that's not, a total, not totally surprising. I was surprised it was high as 45%. Okay, so next week we're going to start on chapter one. So I'll send out an email tonight with the questions that we'll cover. Thanks, y'all.